is uh, probably fair to say that as a country, as a society, that we in Britain today know all about significant announcements, don't we? We know all about significant announcements. If you look back over the last six months, I think you, you know exactly what I'm talking about. First, there was that solemn pronouncement, wasn't there, where we heard that there had been a death, that Queen Elizabeth had passed away. There was that announcement. Then what happened shortly afterwards? There was another announcement, wasn't there? This time that of a resignation of a prime minister, followed shortly by another announcement of another resignation of another prime minister. So we, as a country, we know all about significant proclamations, declarations, official announcements. We do. Well, this morning, uh, in here just now at St. Peter's and from Luke's gospel, we get just now, we are privileged to consider what is arguably the greatest announcement that has ever been made in all of human history. The greatest announcement ever. Namely what? Namely, the angel Gabriel declaring to Mary, not only would she bear a child, a son, Jesus, but more the announcement that this would be by a virgin birth, that this would be an announcement, a declaration of a virgin conception. So, uh, we do as we do. We turn back at this point, don't we, to Luke's gospel, chapter 1, and from verse 26. Now, I, I would, as you search for this in your Bible, as you turn back there, as you scroll in your phone for it, I would ask you that all the while this morning, you have something nagging away at the back of your mind, a question as we look at all of this. And the question, well, what do these things tell us of Jesus. Do you see the distinction? We are going to examine this. We look at the details of this portion of Scripture, but all the while we are thinking, well, yes, but what do these details tell us about who Jesus is, who he is, and why it is that Jesus came? Okay, so you have Luke before you, Luke chapter 1, I'm sure. The first thing that, that, that we ought to consider, and does indeed come out and jump out of the text, I think, is Jesus' contrasted humility. Do you have that as the first thing? Jesus' contrasted humility. Now, <coughs> excuse me, if I say to you, uh, let's, let's begin by looking at the chronological reference at the beginning of verse 26. Maybe, what are you going to think? You're going to think, I'm oh, boring. It sounds, it sounds a bit dull. But is it? So I don't know if we can look at verse 26. You can in your, your Bibles. What's the reference, the time reference? What is it? In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel, and, and so forth. What's that? What is that? That's not uh, the sixth month of the year, is it? You have to view that in light of what has come before it. In verse 24, you can have that. Listen to verse 24. After these days, Zechariah's wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden, and then 
in the sixth month, the, the angel appears to me. Do, do you see the rather elementary point that I'm making to you just now? What is so often overlooked, but is absolutely critical for our understanding of this portion of Scripture, is that these two sections, the one that we looked at last week together and this week, they belong together. Do you hear that? It's overlooked a lot, of, a lot of the time, but it's essential for our understanding. So this appearance of the angel to Zechariah and this appearance to Mary, we are supposed to view those side by side, yes? In fact, you all get that idea, don't you? You get that idea because I think many of you can think back to your childhood and remember those, do you know the spot, the difference sort of cartoons and drawings you used to get in puzzle books as kids? Do you remember those? You do remember it. You were at your granny's house, maybe, and you were bored and uh, wondering what to do. And then you would discover a puzzle book that she bought for you ages ago. And you would open it up. What would you find? You'd find two drawings. Do you remember Spot the Difference? Two drawings, and they look almost absolutely identical. But what's the task? We've got to examine these, don't we? We really investigate it, and then we've got to ring any of the notice where they diverge. You remember that, in a sense, and with all reverence, that is what we're dealing with here. So, in the way that Luke writes this, there are so many similarities between these two two sections. Why? Why? So that you and I might notice where these two sections diverge, differ. You follow? So what do we have to do? What do we do? First thing, I suppose, is we just notice some of the similarities, do we? You, you've noticed them, have you, between Zechariah and Mary in these two, two accounts? Can I mention some of them? I think we all know, like, cousins, yeah? And there's a promise in both that there will be a miraculous birth. We get that. But in the way it's written, did you notice? Let me read some of them to you. So in both accounts, follow these, in both, the scene is first set by Luke, isn't it? And then in both, an angel appears, yes? In both, what's the reception? There's fear. In both, the angel gives assurance. Wait for this. In both, the child is named by the angel, more. In both, the significance of the child is underlined. Now, notice this one as well. In both accounts, a question then follows from the recipient of this vision. And then in both, in the answer that the angel gives, the angel speaks about the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit's work. In both accounts, a sign is then given. And do you know what I could do? I could probably keep going, going to lunchtime. But you get the idea, right? In the way that this is written, there are so many parallels, aren't there? In these, what's the next thing we have to do? Come on, remember, spot the difference. We, we look at these similarities, but we are supposed to notice what differences these reveal. Now, I want you to hear this, please. Luke primarily, primarily, he uses this device to emphasize the greater glory of Jesus. You follow that? He uses this device to show Jesus is greater than John the Baptist, and you and I will deal with that in just a moment. But listen to me, there's a secondary issue here, and it's the one that I want us to focus on right now. This device is used so that you might recognize in this text the humble 
beginnings to Jesus' life. So there are similarities put forward, so many similarities, that what might jump out at you just now is the humble setting, the humble beginnings to Jesus' life. Now, what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you two things to notice with me in the text. So we're holding them up, these two things. This vision to Zechariah, this vision to Mary. First, notice the location. Like, you were here last Sunday, were you? Most of you were here, I think. We had a good attendance last Sunday. So you're going to know, in fact, if you weren't here, you probably know the answer anyway. But if I ask you, where exactly did the angel appear last time to Zechariah? Can we remember what the answer was? We can remember, I think. It was, what would you say, Jerusalem? So the center of Judaistic worship? More than that, though, right? Where was it? It was the temple, wasn't it? Do you remember? More than that. It was in the holy place, wasn't it? More than that, it was at the altar. More than that, it was at the right-hand side, the place of favor at the altar. Do you see, from the perspective of an Israelite, it could not be a more elevated and exalted position that the angel appears to Zechariah. Hang on. What's the contrast with Mary? Where does Gabriel appear? And you almost laugh. Nazareth! Are you having a laugh? Nazareth! I mean, I ask you, have you heard of Cardrona in the Scottish borders? I mean, do do you know uh, bowling in West Dumbartonshire? Do you? Most of us haven't a clue. Why not? Because these are tiny, tiny little villages. You see the point? The same is true of Nazareth at this point in time. Like you and I have to understand, Nazareth was this pokey little backwater. It had like 400 maybe inhabitants, maybe 450 inhabitants. It was unknown and remarkably, it went unmentioned in the whole of the Old Testament scriptures. Do you see the point? When contrasted with the right-hand side of the altar, what do we think? We think, what humble circumstance and situation. It's the first thing. The second thing, though, is to consider the contrast in the recipient. Again, really obvious question, especially if you were here last week. To whom? To whom did the angel appear last time? Okay. Was it Elizabeth? No. It was to Zechariah. Now, who is this? It's a man, significant in the ancient world. But more than that, who's Zechariah? You remember, don't you? Remember what we talked about? He was a, he's a priest. More, he's a priest from the line of Abijah. More than that, he's the priest who is actually chosen at this point in time to be serving the holy place. Do you see again, from the perspective of an Israelite, you cannot hardly get anyone more exalted. And then you turn over here and you place spot the difference. And who do we have in front of us? Come on, Mary. I'm asking you, come on, who is Mary? What do you say? Do you say to me, I, I, she's a woman? Come on, she's a little girl. I mean, 13 years old? 
14 years old? A little girl. And because of her situation, this is most likely in a girl who's entirely uneducated, and it is a girl who is certainly dirt poor. (laughs) And okay, we are told she is highly favored in the sense that God displays grace and pours grace out upon her. But you get the idea. When you compare Mary to Zechariah, what do you think? What are you supposed to see? What is the difference? The difference is what a humble circumstance we have here for the beginning of our Lord's life. Isn't it something? Isn't it? As a dad, I am, as every day passes, I am increasingly aware that what parents want is the best for their kids. Don't we? And doesn't that make the gospel all the more remarkable? What has God done? In the incarnation, God the Father has watched God the Son go off into the most difficult environment, the most humble of settings, and all because of God's love for you. We see Jesus contrasted humility. Second thing that jumps out of us here is Jesus' divine heritage, his heritage, his divine heritage. We've thought about his humility, his divine heritage now. And I hope you're with me. The angel at this point has appeared to to Mary and confirmed that she is to bear a, a child, okay? But who is this to be? If we were reading this for the very first time, and there may be some in here who are doing that, okay, we understand just by the fact that an angel is involved here that this child is to be special. We get that. But exactly how? I mean, who is this, this to be? Let's play it like this. What we're going to do is we're going to put up verses 31 and 32, or I ask you to have a look at 31 and 32. Let's do it like this. I will read this. I want you to consider what is it that jumps out at you about uh, who Jesus is here? What what jumps out at you as I I read this? And and maybe think about what initially doesn't jump out at you. (laughs) Okay, so, and and behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son. Now, what jumps out at you here? You ready? And you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and he will be called the son of the most high. What jumps out at you? Like I, I think probably for, for a lot of us, it's the name given, isn't it? It's this name, Jesus. Literally that, you know, don't you? Literally the name means God saves or the Lord is salvation. So perhaps this here is the first hint that we have that this child to be born is to be the savior of his people. Maybe that is what jumped out at you, but there is something more. See, I think uh, we all know, don't we, that there are certain words in the English language (laughs) that tend to be overused. Is that fair? Certain words in the English language that tend to be overused. I wonder if you could think of any examples of this, words that get overused. Awesome probably one of those words. Is that nice? I don't know. Or the young people that 
school kids maybe come home from school <laughs> and it seems that there's only one word that they actually know at that point, isn't there? It's like, how was your day? Fine. How was maths today? Fine. How was lunch today? Fine. Right? You get the idea. You get the idea. You do. There are certain words in the English language, right, that, 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 that tend to get overused. One term that falls very squarely into that category is this word, the word great, isn't it? There are articles, believe it when I tell you, there are articles written about how the word great has lost its sense of greatness by overuse. Okay, you fall. Now, the observant amongst you, which I'm sure is 100% of us, the observant amongst you have noticed that that adjective is used here, is ascribed to Jesus, isn't it? Do you see that? I wonder if it jumped out at you. I want you to appreciate the significance of this. What is our basic premise this morning? Can you remember the basic premise? We are supposed to read this in contrast with last week and Zechariah, aren't we? That's the basic premise. So can you remember what the angel said of John the Baptist last week? Look at verse 15. If we could put verse 15 up. So remember what it said in Jesus. Have that in your mind. But look at what Gabriel said of John the Baptist. He said... You know, many would rejoice. For he will be great before the Lord. Has everyone got it? He will be great before the Lord. What do you think of that? (laughs) On first reading, does it not almost sound like that's better than what is said of Jesus? In a sense, Jesus is, what is it? Jesus is great, but John the Baptist, he's great before the Lord. It sounds like... John is greater than Jesus. Now, this is what I need you to appreciate. It's subtle. I need you to appreciate it. In the Old Testament scriptures, whenever this word great is used, but without a modification or an elaboration or a qualification, if it's just the word great, then almost without exception in the Old Testament scriptures, that is a word to describe God and God alone. Do you hear that? When it's just great and there's no elaboration, no modification of it, and it's used a lot, if it's used just like that, almost without an exception, that is used of the divine being. So do you see it? When you put this adjective together with what Gabriel goes on to say, what does he say? This Jesus is to be great, the son of the most high God, do you see what's being said about Jesus? You do, don't you? Gabriel is revealing that this one to be born to Mary is a divine being. This one to be in Mary's womb is, is, is God himself. I don't know a lot of things. I know this. I know that you know this portion of scripture well. I know that this is a well-trodden path for you. But I'm going to appeal to you this morning to do something. Right now, as a Christian, as a follower of Jesus, I implore you to pause and to seek to view these things today as though with new eyes. 
and to mull over these truths as if for the first time in your life. What are we saying here? What is God's word confronting you with? Listen to it. Marvel at it. This child promised to Mary is the very potentate of time. Do you hear it? This child soon to be conceived is the very, what? Creator God. The creator God. So this infant that is soon to be born to a woman and, 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 and loved by this woman, this, this one is the same one who in the Garden of Eden was the one who breathed life into the very first woman, Eve. Isn't this stunning? Isn't it? This child who will be born and then, you know how it is, laid in his mother's arms for the first time. This little baby, maybe crying, maybe so young, unable to see, properly held in his mother's arms. This child is the same one who holds all life and all things in the palm of his hand. You see it? Don't you recognize it? Don't you see the danger? You and I must never, ever become dulled, numbed to the majesty, but the mystery of the incarnation. What is this greatness of which Gabriel speaks? This is the greatness in Jesus of Almighty God become a wave. So we see a humility, a heritage, Thirdly, we are taught of Jesus' kingly honor, his kingly honor. When I was a kid, maybe about four or five years old, just a little boy, nothing on this world that I enjoyed more than playing with my dad. I loved it. Um, When I was a kid, there was a terrible TV program. What was it called? Monkey? I think it was. It was awful. And it's rubbish, and this is not to be taken as a recommendation. <laughs> and I don't even think we watched it. Like, we maybe watched one episode of this, but we used to love to play it. So there's me, five years old, my little younger brother, four, and we've got plastic swords, plastic helmets, and we are using my old man as a horse. <laughs> it's amazing how time progresses. I was used as a horse only a few days ago by people not to be mentioned. Um, But I used to love nothing more than playing with my dad. I loved it. Many of you would have been the same. Do you know what I hated? I hated waiting to play with my dad. He had a job, right? And so I just, I remember, even though I was very weak, I hated that feeling, you know? I was just having to wait for him to come home. And there's that sort of cliched image, isn't there? There's me at the window, you know, staring out as a little boy, waiting, when is he coming home? I hated that feeling. What is that there? What is it? Do you know what it is? It's longing. It's longing, isn't it? If we are going to understand something of the the wonder of the incarnation, we have to understand something similar here in Luke's gospel. So what I want you to do, what you need to do, is you need to come with me into the depths of the Old Testament for a matter of seconds, okay? 
So let's put up 2 Samuel chapter 7. Look how quickly we did that. That was tremendous. Uh, You can turn up there if you want. 2 Samuel uh, chapter 7. What is this? Do we know this portion of scripture? I think we do, don't we? We've looked at it previously, even as a church, over the last few months. What's going on in 2 Samuel 7? Do you remember? David has gone off. He's wanting to build God a house. You remember it, don't you? How does God respond? Do you remember God firstly rebukes David, but then secondly, what does God do? It's an amazing thing. Listen. What God does in response is he promises to raise up a king from David's line. Oh, it gets better and more elaborate. This promise, this will be a king who will have a new relationship with God. So it will be the relationship of a son to the father. And more than that, this king's reign will be in supremacy over all things, and it will be for eternity, an everlasting kingdom, right? We know this, don't we, Second Samuel 7? Now, it's the first thing I wanted you to do. I wanted you to come with me into the Old Testament. Second thing that I want you to do is to try and view that promise from the perspective of the first century world. Will you do that for me? I think you, you understand that even from the perspective of the first century, 2 Samuel 7 was a long time ago, wasn't it? And what did I say last week? Do you remember what I said? I said that at this point in the first century, there had been 400 years of radio silence from God. God had not spoken, revealed anything for 400 years. Do you see the image? Do you remember me as a wee kid? What's the image in the first century world? Collectively, you have the people of Israel staring out the window. Do you understand? The people of God are, are, what, there's a promise of this Davidic king. The people of God are are longing with everything they are, everything they have for this, this figure who is the hope of Israel. They are longing for this divinely appointed king. And when you recognize that, do you not see this morning the wonder and the glory of the very next words that Gabriel says to Mary? Look at it, verse 32, verse 33. Look at this. Gabriel looks at Mary and says, God will give what? This one. He will give this very child the throne of his father David. Does that not reverberate? Do you not feel the weight of it? Gabriel says, and this child, he will be the one who reigns over the house of Jacob forever. This child of his kingdom, there will be no end. Do you see what you've got in front of you? Here in this child to be born, and Mary is the one all Israel had waited for. That's it, isn't it? That through Mary and her betrothal to this guy, Joseph, from the line of David, though not naturally, legally, the same is true of Jesus. From the line of David, do you see here, at long, long, long last, here comes the promised Davidic king. And do you know what we could say, you and I, just now? We could, we could say, oh, if we could only imagine the joy there must have been in the first century for the first readers of this. Oh, only imagine the joy. We don't need to say that. Because as a Christian church today, what's true of us? 
We know such joy ourselves. Isn't it true, Christian friend? Isn't this the miracle of the gospel? That by God's grace, Christ has become your king too. By faith in all of God, what has happened, you have entered into this kingdom. And again, I'm urging you to grasp it anew today, to worship God for it anew today. Who is Jesus? He is the king. He is the king of kings. He is the one right now who reigns high over every power and every authority. He reigns. His reign is the one that will outlast and surpass any other kingdom, any other empire. He alone is the king. The Davidic king has come, born to Mary. He has subdued you. He has won victory for us. And that king will soon return. And he will return to reveal the splendor, power, and majesty of his kingdom before all the watching world. We see here Jesus' kingly, kingly honor. And then we end. A last thing. So we've seen his humility, his heritage, his honor. Fourthly, we see something of Jesus' sinless humanity. His sinless humanity. I said a second ago that most likely, just because she's born in Nazareth in the first century, that Mary is uneducated. Didn't I? Uneducated. Doesn't mean she's daft. And so hearing these things from the angel, <laughs> Mary has Mary has a question, doesn't she? A rather pertinent question. Well, I am I am going to bear a a, a, ch- a child? What's her question? But how? After all, what is the, the very famous detail that we've hardly touched on thus far? Mary's a virgin. How is this going to happen? Well, although the answer that, that I mean, Gabriel deals with it, doesn't he? He gives an answer. And although the answer is famously restrained, the answer to the question how, I still think it, it, it sheds a dazzling light on the nature and the manner of this conception. Can, can you please, as we close with these things, can you look at it with me? Verse 35. 35. So, how on, how on earth am I going to, you know, I'm a virgin. How is this going to happen? And he says this, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High power of this Holy Spirit will overshadow you. Now, uh, will you zoom in yourself on that term? So the, the, whole, the power of the Holy Spirit, the power of the Most High, what's the term? Will overshadow you. So my question to you as a congregation just now is, what, what does that conjure up in your mind? The, the, the Holy Spirit here, the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Where, do, where does your mind go? Think biblically with me for a moment, please. What do you think? Do you, do you maybe, does your mind go to the Old Testament wilderness? In a sense, it should. The language here is, is, is very, very similar to the, that idea of the glory of God coming down to overshadow the tabernacle in the wilderness. Is that where your mind went? 
If so, tremendous. I would ask you, though, to, to go back a little bit further. Now, listen, please. The imagery that the angel Gabriel uses here is the same imagery as found, of course it is, as found in Genesis chapter 1. Now, you must linger on that. Isn't it something? God's word is revealing that there is some sort of correlation between how the Almighty worked in the original creation of all things and a correlation between that and how God worked within the inner parts of Mary. Isn't that amazing? That as the Holy Spirit hovered over the waters, the original creation, to bring forth land, so the Holy Spirit hovered over Mary and her womb in order to bring forth this life. Isn't that remarkable? This is a deep thing that the angel Gabriel speaks of here. But please, please, please recall our original concern. What do we have to have in the back of our mind right now? We look at the details, but we are asking, but what do they tell us about Jesus and who he is? Well, let me repeat myself. If you were here last week, you remember what I said about free church ministers playing the odds. Do you remember? I say the same thing again to you today. Look around at the amount of people in this room. Bear in mind the people who watch live on YouTube. Bear in mind that this continues to go out on YouTube. It's there for all eternity. <laughs> but do you see what that means? Play the odds. It means that most likely there are people in here who are apart from Christ. People who are outside of the kingdom of God. And here, in this very room. And if that is you, I'm asking you just now to just for a second consider the predicament of humanity before God because of sin. I need you to know this and hear it if you're not a Christian. Ours is a God who deals with humanity through a representative we don't focus on that enough. God does not just deal with humanity. God deals with humanity through a representative. We talk about Adam in the garden, don't we? What do we say about him? Oh, he's the first man. That's what we say about Adam. And Adam was the first man. But do you know what else he was? Listen to this. He was mankind's representative. And man alive. That is not good news. Is it? Because what does Adam do? He rebels against God. He violates the covenant of works. He plunges all of those that he represents into ruin before God. Set from that point on to receive condemnation, judgment. Why? Because of the sin. Because of the sinful nature that we receive. How do we receive it? Through our Father. And through his father before him and his father before that, stretching all the way back to this Adam in the garden, our representative. And if you recognize and feel on your shoulders and in your heart the weight of that predicament before God, do you not see the wonder in the manner of Jesus' birth and conception? 
Because what is the implication of those words? Look at the word again. Verse 35, the power will overshadow you. You will be born of the Holy Spirit. And then he says, therefore, therefore, the implication is this child to be born will be called holy. The son of God, holy. Christian friends, do you not see the implication of that? My unbelieving friends, do you not see the implication of it? This child was to be born different that because the Holy Spirit is responsible for his conception and not a fallen human father. What does it mean? It means that this Jesus would be born sinless, born without that fallen, inherited corruption. In short, why is it in the 21st century, why on earth? Would we cherish and hold on to the reality of a virgin birth? Why is this something the church clings to? Do you not see why? Through this, we have received a new representative. We have received a second Adam because of this overshadowing. Born to Mary is one who can live that representative holy life for us more, as we will remember in a second. Because of this overshadowing, born is one who can even go to the cross and offer himself as a holy, holy, holy sacrifice for our sin. That is why this is held and cherished by the people of God. And so I end with this. You can all see what is the last and final contrast in this spot, the difference, I think. You can see the contrast, compare them. Zechariah responds to this angelic appearance. And how did he respond last week? You remember? He responded with doubt and disbelief. And compare it to little Mary. She hears all of these things and how does she respond? Oh, her heart bows and she declares herself to be a servant of God in these things. She responds with belief. So I end in the obvious way. We hold these things up before you today. And I ask, which is it for you? Right now, what is it? 6th of November? 2020 here as you sit in this room in St. Peter's, which is it for you? Is it doubt? Is it disbelief? Or are you found today trusting in the name of the Lord? Oh, I pray it's the latter. And why? Oh, uh, for the glory of the Davidic King. I pray that today you are found trusting Jesus and all for his glory. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for what is one of the pinnacles, the, the high points of Holy Scripture. We thank you that your whole word is inerrant. We thank you that it is life-giving. And we thank you it declares of a virgin conception of one who was born holy 
the Son of God. We bow before you in worship. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.